Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, this is me, VTD. Um, I'm going to make sure that everything is working on the other end because we now simulcast this show also on Zeitgeist TV so that the people from Bold Voices TV can hear it. Um, today I have on with me uh, Thunder, and Thunder um, who was on the previous show. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Thunder. Hello, everybody. It's me again, Thunder from TVP Radio and uh, other places far and wide. Hope everyone's doing well today. And, uh, Azzy, are you back to the keyboard? I'm here. Hello. All right. Excellent. Well, go ahead and uh, um, you two could uh, basically, like, um, Azzy, go ahead and introduce yourself. And uh, Thunder, if you want to basically tell him what we've been reading about so far while I'm checking on the uh, technical issues here, that would be appreciated. I'll be right back. All righty. Thunder, you can go ahead and explain what's been happening. Well, he's reading from the general... Um, Smedley, shoot, I can't remember his last name, book uh, last week. Sorry, I'm a little brain dead today. Um, uh, um, this is a guy that was a highly decorated general during World War One, and uh, he basically, once he got out of the service and went into um, regular life, civilian life, uh, he realized how corrupt and... and uh, messed up the uh, war efforts were and so he wrote this book about it and uh, it's very revealing it's very I mean the guy literally did a 180 degree turnaround from you know someone directly obviously being a high, highly decorated general uh, being directly involved in World War one to somebody who completely is against war and saw it for what it is, and the, the company's making profits from it, and uh, just was disgusted by it, and so he wrote a very good book uh, on it, and that's what B is reading from today. That's correct, um, and uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about my work um, on a couple of other projects. Um, I am currently, as you all know, still working on the uh, Resource-Based Economy Caucus within the Boston Tea Party. Um, I would appreciate any help I can get on that effort, really. It just amounts to joining the party. It doesn't cost anything. Go to bostontea.us. Uh, that's Boston is in the place. Tea is in the drink. T-E-A, drink. Uh, and uh, .us, and the party costs nothing to join. Um, and it's mostly based on the Internet. Um, but anyway, there I formed a caucus. A caucus is a political group with the purpose of um, spreading a certain idea uh, through that political party. Uh, the political party's platform is to reduce the size and scope of government and on all levels and in all issues. And so basically I wrote a caucus that was, this is our solution to doing that, which is elimination of government entirely through the proper application of technology. Now. In addition to that, I'm working on um, what looks like is going to actually be a major undertaking, which is to develop a, a separate school of anarchy uh, for the resource-based economy idea. Now, before everybody panics, basically, what it is that I'm talking about is I've been studying up on anarchy. Uh, I studied uh, anarcho-syndicalism. I've been studying anarcho-communism. I've also been studying uh, technocracy and cyberocracy. 
And uh, it seems to me that uh, obviously none of these individual groups really covers everything, and that's why um, I, it looks like the project will be called um, anarcho-virtualism, which is essentially kind of a combination of cyberocracy um, and anarchism uh, to, to form one system. And uh, you can read about all of those individual pieces on Wikipedia, and if you have any suggestions on what would you know, go into it, that would be great. Uh, I think I've already developed with the flag would look like every anarchist system has its own flag. Um, we'll get into all of that later. But basically, what I'm trying to do is to translate this idea into as many uh, languages as possible. And I don't just mean languages in the, uh, the sense of like actual functional languages. What I'm also talking about is the terminology that people use. For example, you know, when people say that the Venus Project is totalitarian, I had to study up the understand that the best way to counter that is to point out that actually it's egalitarian. It, it's all about everybody being equal. Um, you know, and uh, also I had to look over the, the issues of communism so that I could figure out what exactly it was they were trying to say we had in common. And that is also one of the reasons why I looked at anarcho-communism. And what I studied there is that they do have some things in common with us, but the, the flaws that they have we don't have in common with them because we treat them very differently. Uh, basically, the, the way that we go about um, settling these things is very different, um, mostly because they still kind of expect on, it's just like the reason why, you know, base anarchism that relies too much on quote-unquote spontaneous order, anarcho-communism kind of relies that people are just going to spontaneously decide to work. And obviously, we know that isn't the case, which is why our solution to that is to automate as many of the boring jobs as possible. Um, and maybe eventually all of them. When you read, um, we can definitely get into that. I'll probably do a whole show about that at some point. I just wanted to make you guys aware of the, the, the projects that I've been working on. Um, there's a channel on the Ventrilo server now for discussing this issue specifically, the resource-based economy. And um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, v Radio is, as always, at this point, still looking for donations. Uh, I have a chip-in wizard on my MySpace account. Uh, that it, there's also one at the bottom of my show page. Uh, there you can um, chip in, and you'll notice that it is a cap off of $100 for each individual chip in, and um, that's going to stay that way because I don't need any more than that, nor would I want any more than that. If you want to donate and it's already reached that point and it won't let you, just save your money for the next month. Um, I'm not trying to make a profit here. I'm just trying to maintain this tool so that we will have it to continue to... Uh, um, spread the word of what it is that we're doing and to try to help people understand, uh, you know, also just for the individual people who are already on to this idea, just new ways. This is also, I mean, largely what people told me when they, when they messaged me is they thanked me for giving them new ways to communicate with people about this idea. Um, sometimes, just like Jacques Fresco told me, you have to be able to relate to people on their own level, and that's what the anarcho-virtualism school is all about. Um, that's what the resource-based economy um, caucus is all about. And these are just efforts that are going to be added, you know, later on to, you know, a greater scheme of hopefully being able to get this idea to as many people as possible. Hey, so, V, you, yeah. you have a new website as well, I understand. Oh, yes, I do. I've mentioned this a couple times. It's v-radio, that's v-sign-radio at... Uh, uh, Dot org basically, um, and on that website I also list the uh, links to various other shows, including funders. 
if you are a radio host who is part of the Venus Project Zeitgeist movement and you would like to have your show listed, please just send me an email at vtv at vradio.org, spelled the same way. Um, and also there you can also find, uh, uh, you know, basically if you go to vradio.org, you can find the links to my MySpace that will make it much easier for you to figure out where to donate to me, um, not to mention my main show page. So please uh, keep that in mind. And um, it's a very simple, very primitive website, but it came for free with my Internet package, so I'm not complaining. Let me uh, dig up this War is a Racket uh, book that we've been reading from. Uh, at the conclusion of this show, I'm going to provide a link to the PDF file so that you yourself can read this book. Um, it is a very good book, and as I'm sure Thunder was explaining to Azzy, one of the major things that is just mind-blowing about this book is that you have a guy who, this is before World War II, he was already predicting that Mussolini and Hitler were going to be a problem well before it happened. He was, you know, all of the things that he's complaining about, the different ways that we misspend, the different ways that we misallocate resources in the name of profit while in, you know, in a state of war, are all exactly the same things that we're talking about now. There, you know, he was also a state, uh, basically not a state, a federal Senate candidate, and unfortunately he didn't win. Uh, judging by the way he conducted himself in the writing of this book, I really wish he had, because I think the world would have been a very different place, um, especially if he could have become president. Um, so basically we've, we've been over a little bit about what Smedley Butler uh, had accomplished in the military. He was a very well-decorated general. I'm not going to go over the whole list of things. If you would like to hear that, of course, you can listen to the previous episode, which is archived. Uh, and um, it is my hope now that um, you know, we can get on with this. And uh, thank you all for tuning in to V Radio. And um, I'm looking forward to giving you more programming. Uh, once again, we have switched to a regular schedule of Monday through Thursday, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's only a one-hour show, but I'm doing them more often now. Um, and you can also listen to them at Bold Voices TV. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys who are from the Zeitgeist movement that the Bold Voices TV chat room is, has a lot of people of different philosophies, so don't be surprised if you go in there and people don't agree with you, <laughs> which is fine. Just um, you know, basically you know, keep that in mind when you're dealing with it, but it is a good place to go if you want to um, see uncensored, content from people who are really just trying to spread their message, whatever it happens to be. So um, bearing all of that in mind now, I'm going to move on to Chapter 3 of uh, this book, War is a Racket, by Major General Smedley Butler. Um, let's see, we're going to come all the way down here. <laughs> this is actually, I'm reading from the PDF as we speak. It's a really old book. But uh, the fact that it's so old and that it is history and that it's just talking about what we're dealing with in the present is extremely telling. So anyway, Chapter 3, Who Pays the Bills? One moment. Had to take a drink because I'm getting ready to do a lot of reading. Okay. Who pays the bills? Who provides the profits? These nice little profits of 20, 100, 300, 1,500, and 1,800 percent. We all pay them in taxation. 
we paid the bankers their profits when we bought Liberty bonds at $100 and sold them back at $84 or $86 to the bankers. These bankers collected $100 plus. It was a simple manipulation. The bankers controlled the security marts. It was easy for them to depress the price of these bonds. Then all of us, the people, got frightened and sold the bonds at $84 or $86. The bankers bought them. Then these same bankers stimulated a boom and government bonds went to par and above. Then the bankers collected their profits. But the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. On a tour of the country in the midst of which I am at the time of this writing, I have visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. They were very... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. They were the, the very able chief surgeon at the government hospital at Milwaukee where there are 3,800 of the living dead, told me that the mortality among veterans is three times as great as among those who stayed at home. Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. They were remodeled. They were made over. They were made to about face, to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder, and through mass psychology, they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or being killed. Then suddenly we discharged them and told them to make another about face. This time they had to do their own readjustment. Sans without mass psychology. Sans officers, meaning without officers, aid and advice, without nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them anymore. So we scattered them about without any three-minute or liberty loan speeches or parades. Many too many of these fine boys, many, too many of these fine boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about face alone. In the government hospital in Marion, Indiana, 1,800 of these boys are in pens, 500 of them in barracks with steel bars and wires all around outside the buildings and on the porches. These already have been mentally destroyed. These boys don't even look like human beings. Oh, the looks on their faces. Physically, they are in good shape. Mentally, they are gone. There are thousands and thousands of these cases, and more and more are coming in all the time. The tremendous excitement of the war, the sudden cutting off of that excitement, the young boys couldn't stand it. That's part of the bill. So much for the dead. They have paid their, war, they have paid their part of the war profits. So much for the mentally and physically wounded. They are paying now their share of the war profits. But the others paid too. They paid with the heartbreaks when they tore themselves away from their firesides and their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam, on which the profit had been made. They paid another part in the training camps where they were regimented and drilled while others took their jobs and took their places and their lives in their communities. They paid for it in the trenches when they shot and were shot where they were hungry for days at a time, where they slept in the mud and the cold and in the rain with the moans and shrieks of the dying for a horrible lullaby. But don't forget, the soldier paid part of the dollars and cents bill, too. Up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system, and soldiers and sailors fought for money. During the Civil War, they were paid bonuses in many instances before they went into service. 
the government or states paid as high as $1,200 for an enlistment. In the Spanish-American War, they gave prize money. When we captured any vessels, the soldiers all got their share, at least they were supposed to. Then it was found that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping it, but conscripting, i.e. drafting, the soldier anyway. Then soldiers couldn't bargain for their labor. Everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, quote, All men are enamored of decorations. They positively hunger for them. End quote. So by developing the Napoleonic system, the metal business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money, because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honor was handed out. It made enlistments easier. After the Civil War, no new medals were issued until the Spanish-American War. In the World War, we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. So vicious was this war propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, 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 to kill Germans. God is on our side. It is his will that Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the Allies, to please the same God. That was a part of the general propaganda, built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideas were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was not the war to end all wars. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going in and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. No one told them that the ships on which they were going to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. They were just told it was to be a glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war, too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this mon- you know, munificent sum was to leave their dead to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, eat canned willy when they could get it, and kill and kill and kill and be killed. But wait, half of that wage, just a little more than a riveter in a shipyard or a laborer in a munitions factory safe at home made in a day, was promptly taken from him to support his dependents so that they could not become a charge upon his community. Then we made him pay what amounted to accident insurance, something the employer pays for is in, a, for in an enlightened state, and that cost him $6 a month. He had that less than $9 a month left. Then, the cost-crowning insolence of all, he was virtually blackjacked into paying for his own ammunition, clothing, and food by being made to buy liberty bonds. Most soldiers got no money at all on paydays. We made them buy liberty bonds at $100, and then we bought them back. And when they came back and the war couldn't find work at $84, from the war and couldn't find work at $84 and $86, and the soldiers bought about $2 billion worth of these bonds. Yes, the soldier pays the greater part of the bill. His family pays too. They pay it in the same heartbreak that he does. As he suffers, they suffer. At night, as he lay in the trenches and watched shrapnel burst around him, They lay home in their beds and tossed sleeplessly. His father, his mother, his wife, his sisters, his brothers, his sons, and his daughters. When he returned home minus an eye or minus a leg or with his mind broken, they suffered too. 
as much as and even sometimes more than he. Yes, and they too contributed their dollars to the profits of the munitions makers and bankers and the shipbuilders and the manufacturers and spectators made, speculators made. They too bought liberty bonds and contributed to the profit of the bankers after the armistice and the hocus-pocus of manipulated liberty bond prices. And even now, the families of the wounded men and the mentally broken are those who never were able to readjust themselves, are still suffering and still paying. Well, that's the end of Chapter 3. Um, I'm going to bring on my panelists. I'm going to have to reconnect with Thunder. It looks like he had an Internet problem. I hope he didn't miss all of that. looks like he's still offline, though. I may have to wait. But, Azzy, um, you're here, so uh, why don't you give your commentary on this chapter? Well, um, there's a game I play. Uh, there's an old quote from the game. It's called War Never Changes. And uh, that chapter has really helped me uh, understand that quote a lot more. Uh, I, you take that and put that into the context of modern day. I, I don't see much that's actually changed since this guy has wrote this book, which is amazing and, and horrifying at the same time. I totally agree with you. And it's, it's funny because, as you said, war never changes. You know, in earlier parts of the book, you know, you remember, I don't know if you ever forgot to listen to our episode about Addicted to War. Like they talked about it being, you know, the same way during the, uh, the Indian Wars when we were killing Indians and the, all the wars previous. So it's basically been that way forever. And I used to be somebody who watched a lot of war movies, and I still do study military strategy as a hobby. But I'm now to the point where I can't even watch those movies that I used to enjoy. Because now my whole uh, spectrum on war has totally changed. The, the whole way I think about everything about war has changed. And it's really sickening to me to think really heavily about this because there's victims on all sides. Because, you know, we're looking at what the U.S. government did on our side. You can only imagine that that's probably also going on all over the globe. Different countries are figuring out their own ways to do this. You know, and especially when you consider what happens to a serviceman when he gets home, you know, it's just not, you know, we, there are so many servicemen that are um, totally, I'm sorry, what was that? Homeless. Yeah, homeless, as in just to, you know, like basically thrown away like trash because they're not, you know, convenient <laughs> to, right. to have to actually put up with this stuff, you know, to actually have to be held accountable, you know, it's not convenient. And it's quite, it's quite um, disheartening, though, looking at how the recruiting policy of the U.S. goes. It's, uh, they don't start off in, you know, the middle class areas. They don't really start off in the rich areas. They, they start off in the kind of slum areas where you'd have a lot of poor people, you know, living on the fringe, living, you know, barely being able to pay their rent. And uh, you see recruitment officers just go in there and spend their whole day in these kind of areas recruiting poor people that have no other job opportunities because of how the system has dealt with them or has failed to dealt with them, deal with them. My apologies. Right. And they go to war and then you've got the statistics of the chances of dying and if you make it back suddenly you're, you have no money. You ended up exactly...
All right. Um, sorry about that, folks. For some reason, the phone call disconnected. I'm going to check to see if people can hear us again. Um, give me just a moment. Uh, and as you go ahead and uh, finish what it was you were saying while I check to see, make sure that uh, both of these terminals are working. Sure. Well, I don't know when we were cut off, but I was pointing out that uh, you see the uh, U.S. policy on recruiting for uh, new recruits to the Army uh, to go off and fight, say, Afghanistan or to be positioned in Iraq. And uh, they don't spend their time in the middle class areas or the, uh, you know, kind of rich areas. They go into the poor areas, the ones, the people who are living on the fringe of society, the, the way the system, the people who the system has, the system failed to deal with these kind of people. And, you know, they're barely, barely able to pay the rent. It, it's it's sickening to see they go into these people who are so desperate for work, employment, that they spend their whole day, their whole job just in these areas recruiting these poor people. And then these poor people go into war and they either die or they make it back. And if they get back, then, you know, they've got to deal with rendition. I'm sorry, not rendition, stop loss. My apologies. <laughs> and then if they make it through that, you know, they end up, being homeless. I mean, one of the statistics that so many veterans become homeless and so many veterans commit suicide from post-traumatic stress. It, it's really, it's really sickening the, the amount of things these people have to go through just, just, just to find some employment. Okay, looks like we finally fixed it. Um, sorry about that, folks. Uh, Basically, for some reason, the phone call dropped to Blog Talk Radio, and when that does, I lose connection on the terminal also that does all the broadcasting. So, but yeah, it, um, what happens to veterans when they come home is despicable. I honestly, that was one of the things that actually got me the most angry. It was very hard for me to um, conduct myself. Uh, basically, when I was um, when I was uh, running for Congress and I was up on stage trying to deal with stuff, it was not easy um, to compose myself and not get angry. Um, and on this issue especially, the funny thing is I never served, but it just the notion of it is, is that, you know, it actually makes me even more angry than it did previously. And that's because of the fact that now I understand just how much bullshit war really is. You know, it's, it's all crap. You know, even the wars that we, we feel are justified are crap. And hold on a second. It looks like uh, I might need to refresh the Justin TV channel, too. We'll see. Let's see if, uh, is it working again, Beth? what I need to know. I apologize again for the delay. I've been having all kinds of problems with my internet lately. I thought they were completely fixed. Okay. All right. Well, looks like we're back on now. Okay. But yeah, basically, when I was running for Congress, it was really hard to, for me to keep uh, my stuff straight. And basically, it's it, just to keep myself from just going on like huge tirades on this subject. Um, 
I also want to tell you guys uh, we are accepting callers. If you would like to call in on talk and talk on this subject, the call-in line is at 347-945-7747. Um, I'm going to post that in the various chats. I have like three of them. Um, and uh, if anybody would like to call in, weigh in on the subject, let me know. And uh, once again, you're listening to V Radio. I apologize for any of the technical difficulties. I have no idea what the problem is, but uh, I also don't know if Thunder is back yet. Nope, still not. I wonder if he's having internet problems too. But anyway, that's the price of free. So as we were saying, um, yeah, um, as we said also, you know, these things never change. And that's one of the things that, Peter Joseph pointed out in Zeitgeist Addendum, it was very telling, was people say that war is just part of human nature and that it's natural and it's, you know, it's meant to happen. Well, if it's natural, why does it do all of this huge psychological damage to people? Why does it leave them in that state? Because obviously, you know, if that was a natural process of the human brain, you wouldn't be left like that. Do you understand what I'm saying, Azzy? I mean, you know, if it was something that was normal, we wouldn't be psychologically affected by it. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, they, they often say that a soldier with um, empathy makes, you know, make a terrible soldier. But uh, you need to dehumanize people in the first place, which the psychological ramifications are, you know, probably in most cases, like completely, uh, you, can't, you can't turn those effects around. And then they have to go through killing people, raping. It's, you know, no wonder people do this. No, no wonder we have those horrific murders and torturing. And it, it is horrible. You know, there's actually a really good documentary that I played a while ago on Zeitgeist TV called um, American Apocalypse, the Vietnam War. It's uh, narrated by Charlie Sheen, by, no, actually by Martin Sheen. And it was very telling about the things that people... Um, the things that people were, were told to do in Vietnam and how it impacted them. And, you know, when they basically, I mean, despite all the stuff, I mean, the stuff you see in the movies, like one of the things I learned from this documentary was like the movie Platoon was actually the, the part where they were killing that village and burning it down was actually the status quo. That's not the exception. I had originally thought, yeah, those things happened. I didn't know that they primarily happened. But as more and more veterans came forward to expose exactly what it was that they did, what they were told to do, what was understood to be, what was acceptable, and more specifically, what was encouraged, you know, it was definitely, it was not what people wanted to say, you know, we wanted to admit to, ever. So, um, in any case, uh, I guess we can go ahead and get on with the book now. Once again, we are reading from General Smedley Butler's book, War is a Racket. The book is quoted in the Zeitgeist Movement Orientation Guide. Um, a very good watch for those of you who haven't already seen it. Let me pull up this file and we will get ready to go. Chapter 4, How to Smash This Racket. Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay, but there is a way to stop it. You can't end, you can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlays of Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can't be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. 
The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament, armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and speculators be conscripted and get $30 a month, the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. I know Jacques Fresco has, as a satire, suggested the same thing. It wouldn't surprise me if he read this book. I actually think he was alive at this time. Anyway. Uh, let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes, and all generals and all admirals and all officers and all politicians and all government office holders, everyone in the nation, be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all those workers in industry and all our senators and governors and mayors, our majors, pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay more risk insurance to buy li and buy Liberty Bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you will find that by that time there will be no war. <laughs> this guy is awesome. That will smash the war racket, that and nothing else. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. Capital still has some, some, some say. So capital won't permit the taking of the profit of out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds, and those that they elect to office shall do their bidding, and not, the, not that of the profiteers. Another step in this necessary in this fight is to smash the war racket is the limited plebiscite to determine whether a war should be declared. A plebiscite, not of all the voters, but merely of those who would be called upon to do the fighting and dying. There wouldn't be very much sense in having a 76-year-old president of a munitions factory, or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm, or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant, all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of war, voting on whether the nation should go to war or not. They never would be called upon to shoulder the arms, to sleep in a trench, and to be shot. Only those who would be called upon to risk their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether or not the nation should go to war. <laughs> here, here. There is ample precedent for restricting the voting to those affected. Many of our states have restrictions on those permitted to vote. In most, if it is necessary to be able to read and write before you may vote. In some, you must own property. It would be a simple matter each year for the men coming of military age to register in their communities as they did in the draft during, world war, during the World War and be examined physically. Those who could pass and who would therefore be called upon to bear arms in the event of war would be eligible to vote in a limited plebiscite. They should be the ones to have the power to decide and not in Congress, few of, those, few, few of whose members are within the age limit and fewer still of whom are in physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. A third step in the business of smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces of defense only. At each session of Congress, the question of further naval appropriations comes up. The swivel chair admirals of Washington, and there are always a lot of them, are very adroit lobbyists, and they are very smart. And they don't shout that, quote, we need a lot of battleships to war in this nation or that nation, oh no. 
First of all, they let it be known that America is menaced by a great naval power. Almost any day, these admirals will tell you, the great fleet of the supposed enemy will strike suddenly and annihilate 125 billion people just like that. Then they will begin to cry for a larger navy. For what? To fight the enemy? Oh my, no, oh no, for defense purposes only. Then, incidentally, they announce maneuvers in the Pacific for defense. Uh-huh. The Pacific is a great big ocean. We have a tremendous coastline on the Pacific. Will the maneuvers be off coast two or three hundred miles? Oh no. The maneuvers will be 2,000, yes, perhaps even 3,500 miles off the coast. The Japanese, a proud people, of course, will be pleased beyond expression to see the United States fleet so close to Nippon's shores. This is really ironic, because once again, he's predicting World War II. Even as pleased as would be the residents of California, where they did to dimly discern through the morning mist the Japanese fleet playing at war games off of Los Angeles. This basically goes along with the point that a lot of people feel we go to the Japanese in World War II. The ships of our Navy, it can be seen, should be specifically limited by law to within 200 miles of our coastline. Had that been the law in, in 1898, the, the, Ma the Maine would never have gone to Havana Harbor. She never would have been blown up. There would have been no war with Spain and its attendant loss of life. 200 miles is ample in the opinion of experts for defense purposes. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if, if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coastline. Mind you, this idea is probably outdated by now, but still. Planes might be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast for purposes of reconnaissance, and the Army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. To summarize, three steps must be taken to smash the war racket. One, we must take the profit out of war. Two, we must permit the youth of the land who, be, who would bear arms to decide whether or not there should be a war. Three, we must limit our military forces to home defense purposes. Now, there's only one more chapter, so but I'm still going to go ahead and bring you on, Adzi. Um, and then we'll move on to chapter five. Did you have any comments about this chapter? No, I'm still kind of letting it run through my mind. I'm thinking about what he's saying. He's got a lot of um, he's got a lot of info on his like three points. But yeah, I'm generally agreeing with the guy. How about yourself? Um, you know, it's it's funny actually, is that you know because I'm a, a fan of the National Initiative for Democracy, Senator Mike Gravel's Direct Democracy Bill that basically would um, allow us to have federal ballot initiatives. And one of the reasons that this got brought up is that in Switzerland, for example, was one of the places that he models his direct dem democracy idea off of, you can't even deploy the military uh, in Switzerland if you don't have a referendum. As in, you have to have a referendum in order to deploy the military on a major scale and in any right. form of extended way. And as a result, Switzerland doesn't really go to war very much. And... That's basically, I mean, it, there are flaws here and there for direct democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that it doesn't really surprise me that when the people are actually given the choice to decide whether or not somebody should, you know, whether or not they should be going to war, they definitely change their minds. Now, in addition to that, um, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, um, the Swiss army is basically made up of the people of Switzerland. So, therefore... You know, once again, you're in a situation where um, basically um, you're in a situation where you are the people that are going to war. So obviously you're going to think very heavily about whether or not you want to go.
So yeah, I guess that's one of the flaws of just democracy or democracy in the U.S. is that uh, you know, they say oh, it's a free nation. You can choose what you want to do. Well, you you get choice, like you get free choice of what people are telling you. I mean, they give you an option of what you can do. But I mean, you you elect, say, George Bush, um, you know, an ex-oil baron, recovering alcoholic. And I mean, when you voted for him, you may not have had the intention of going to war, but he made that decision for you. You didn't ask for that. You elect these leaders with these agendas that just want to just, you know, squander everyone and just for their selfish agenda. Exactly. I guess the Mike Gravel's idea of a direct democracy is uh, it would it would be very effective. I agree, and it's largely also because of the fact that it has limitations in it on who can spend money towards one initiative or another. Um, so, you, you, for instance, you have to be a natural person. Corporations are not allowed to donate to a, an initiative whatsoever. Um, and But anyway, uh, all of that uh, aside, one moment. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next yep. chapter so we can... I'm sorry, what? Do we have Thunder with us? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's still showing him is offline. He must be having internet problems. So I'm going to go ahead and try to squeeze the last chapter of this book here into the last minutes we have. So chapter five, to hell with war. I am not a fool as to believe that war is a thing of the past. I know the people do not want war, but there is no use in saying we cannot be pushed into another war. Looking back, Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916 on a platform that he had kept us out of war and an implied promise that he would keep us out of war. Yet five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. In that five-month interval, the people that had not been asked whether they had changed their minds, the four million young men who put on uniforms and marched or sailed away, were not asked whether they wanted to go forth and suffer and die. Then what caused our government to change its mind so suddenly? Money. An Allied commission, it may be recalled, came after shortly before the war declaration and called on the president. The president summoned up a group of advisors. The head of the commission spoke, stripped off its diplomatic language. This is what he told the president and his group. Quote, there is no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the Allies is lost. We now owe you, American bankers, American munitions makers, American manufacturers, American speculators, and American exporters, five or six billion dollars. If we lose, and without the help of the United States, we will lose, we, England, France, and Italy, cannot pay back this money, and Germany won't. So, end quote, had secrecy been outlawed as far as war negotiations were concerned, and had the press been invited to be present at that conference, or had radio been available to broadcast the proceedings, America never would have entered the World War. But this conference, like all war discussions, was shrouded in utmost secrecy, there's a lot of, uh, in that documentary I told you guys about Vietnam, there's a lot of this kind of stuff. You can actually listen to Lyndon Johnson talking about Vietnam, but I'll get into that later. When our boys were sent off to war, they were told it was a war to make world safe for democracy and a war to end all wars. Well, 18 years after, the world has less of a democracy than it had then. Besides, what business is it of ours whether Russia or Germany or England or France or Italy or Austria live under democracies or monarchies? whether they are fascists or communists. Our problem is that they is to preserve our own democracy. And very little, if anything, has been accomplished to assure us that the world war was really the war to end all wars. And 
ironically, after this, World War II happened. Continuing, yes, we have had disarmament conferences and limitations of armed conference, arms conferences. They don't mean a thing. One has just failed. The results of another have been nullified. We send our professional soldiers and our sailors and our politicians and our diplomats to these conferences. And what happens? The professional soldiers and sailors don't want to disarm. No admiral wants to be without a ship. No general wants to be without a command. Both mean men without jobs. They are not for disarmament. They cannot be for limitations of arms. And at, at all these conferences, l- lurking in the background, but all-powerful, just the same, are the sinister agents of those who profit by war. They see to it that these conferences do not disarm or seriously limit armaments. The military-industrial complex, as to be coined later by President Eisenhower. Continuing. The chief of aim of any power at any of these conferences has not been to achieve disarmament, to prevent war, but rather to get more armament for itself and less for any potential foe. There is only one way to disarm with any semblance of practicability. That is, for all nations to get together and scrap every ship, every gun, every rifle, every tank, every warplane. Even this, if it were possible, would not be enough. The next war, according to experts, will be fought not with battleships, not by artillery, not with rifles, not with machine guns. It will be fought with deadly chemicals and gases. Secretly, each nation is studying perfecting new and ghastlier means of annihilating its foes wholesale. Yes, ships... Yep. Yes, ships will continue to be built, and for the shipbuilders must make their profits, and guns will still be manufactured and powder and rifles will be made, for the munitions makers must make their huge profits. And the soldiers, of course, must wear uniforms, for the manufacturer must make their war profits too. Halliburton. But victory or defeat will be determined by the skill and ingenuity of our scientists. If we put them to work making poison gas and more and more fiendish mechanical and explosive instruments of destruction, they will have no time for the constructive job of building greater prosperity for all peoples. By putting them to this useful job, we can all make more money out of peace than we can out of war, even the munitions makers. So I say, and he puts it in huge, bold letters, to hell with war. And that's the conclusion of the book. A lot to take in. He really does hit you. Yeah, he does. And it's it, like I said, it's this book is. Let me see. Once again, uh, published back in. Geez, uh, nineteen. What was it again? I had it a moment ago. But basically, way long ago, um, right like before World War One. That's how long ago this book was published. And he's still talking about the same stuff that we're talking about now. And I can't find the exact date, but um, you know, he won a lot of medals. Retired October first, nineteen thirty-one, and. Uh, I guess you can get more information on Major General Butler from the United States Marine Corps. I don't know if you still can. (laughs) That was a long time ago. Um, But as promised, I'm going to put a link to this uh, PDF file in uh, the various chat rooms, and I'll be providing it in addition to that um, later. But uh, so what did you think about that, Azzy? Um, I was wondering, quick question, is the PDF file free? Yeah. All right. It's such an old book. 
I don't think anybody, I mean, I'm sure you could probably buy a copy of it, but the book is like from back in the 30s, so um, there's a, some kind of copyright issue that it's uh, free after so many years. But, yeah, well, you know, it's it's eye-opening not in that it tells you anything new. It's eye-opening that in that it's telling you that this is all the same crap. <laughs> right. Just regurgitated over and over and over again. And they always convince people, don't worry, this will be the last time. I remember doing a show on VTV, which was my show on Ron Paul TV. And... Uh, it was basically this, where I took clips of what was said to get us into Iraq, um, and then I took clips of what they were saying about Iran, and I compared the two. <laughs> and, and they were the same stuff. I was like, oh, my God. Does any, is anybody else like just not getting this? I was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know. All the same debates over and over again. I just took like I think it was like a dozen YouTube clips, you know, of the various things that were said. And you know, the only person who was consistent on the subject was Ron Paul. Um, Dennis Kucinich also opposed the wars, uh, and the war in Iraq is actually what got Senator Mike Gravel to come out of hiding. Essentially, I don't want to say hiding, but he just, you know, he wasn't doing anything in politics. The guy's like 78 years old, and what motivated him was coming back. Uh, into politics to try to deal with the new Vietnam, in his opinion, which was the war in Iraq. Yep. Uh, I also think uh, stuff like Vietnam uh, would be a perfect showcase for um, his words. Uh, I mean, how, he, how the Americans even got involved with Vietnam in the first place is funny. Uh, I, I remember um, the Tolkien War, was it? The uh, yeah, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Yeah, that it's not even that's not even denied anymore. People they they admit to it now. Right. It was what was <laughs> August fourteenth. They uh, they said they were attacked, and then on August sixteenth, nineteen sixty four, they saw sonar blips and thought torpedoes being shot at them. So uh, it was it was um, the the guy who worked for Ford, and he was the president of the World Bank. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he was the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time, and I, I watched the good documentary interviewing him about all this stuff. It was called The Fog of War, and you should check it out to get his personal opinion on yeah, it. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that one out, actually. It looks like we have a caller. I'm going to try to bring them on the air. Uh, KitKat2116. Um, yeah, hello. You're on the air. Hello? Hello, caller? KitKat2116, you're on the air. I thought I'd heard something when I unmuted it, but uh, not hearing anything now. Right. Well, I'll just leave their mic open. If you would like to contribute to the uh, conversation, let us know. We're now down to seven minutes on this segment of V Radio. I once again apologize for all of the uh, previous technical difficulties we've been having lately. Um, I hope that that actually is going away. They actually had to deal with, like, the, the problem my Internet was so bad. They had to go into the box on the back of my house, as in it was obviously not internal. They had to go on the back of my box and rip it open to find out where this gigantic packet loss was coming from. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty rough. Um, 
But anyway, um, as I was saying, um, we were talking about Vietnam. So go ahead and say, you know, finish finish your statement. Well, I was just saying about the fog of war. It's basically his uh, memoir through the whole eras of wars that he's been in. I mean, it's quite, you know, you want to talk about the military-industrial complex. Uh, I'm lost for words on the guy's name. Uh, I should know it. Um, do you have it? Have a what? The name of the Secretary of Defense for Vietnam, and then he was in the World Bank. He was uh, president of the Ford Company. Oh, wow. No, I don't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. Anyway, it was the, it's a great documentary, but uh, it's funny if you talk about the industrial complex, you, you couldn't go out without mentioning this guy. I mean, if he starts off as like a Harvard professor, moving to an advisor for uh, World War II, moving to uh, you know uh, the Ford Company, who was an associate for them, and then he was upgraded to president, and then he was asked by Kennedy to be the Secretary of Defense, and then he became the you know the World Bank president. I mean, it's an amazing route to go through all stages of the military-industrial complex. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a complex issue. Yeah. But uh, he was talking about the chemicals, um, and just, uh, I think I said that, uh, Agent Orange, how it's still... Um, causing birth defects in Vietnam today and I mean I think the troops managed to sue was it Monsanto that created that and yep. they managed to actually get some um, compensation but there's yet to be a successful Vietnam lawsuit against Monsanto for Agent Orange yep yeah Which that is, was all Monsanto and those people right. make food too oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, Monsanto was an evil company. We could we could spend a whole show talking about nothing but Monsanto. That's that's one company I can't find a single redeeming quality about to make up for the crap they put people through. You can learn about Monsanto in The Future of Food and The World According to Monsanto. Very revealing documentaries about a company that I think could, you know, just as far as I'm concerned, be blown off the map. Right. I wanted to point out there that I recently had a conversation with an uncle of mine uh, who works with a, a prominent bank who he would say would be in the system of the Federal Reserve. Um, anyway, my uncle was talking to me and I was talking to him about the whole military industrial complex and how companies uh, and uh, how governments are working together to bankrupt other countries and to find ways to go into war and uh, explain some terms like economic hitmen like uh, John Perkins we I think most people know who that man is now uh, you know things like that and he was just like you're saying you know as he as he as he stop 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 why are you telling me everything I already know and I was like <laughs> I was like you know this and you you work for this bank and he says yeah mm -hmm. and I said does, does this not make you feel you know a little uh, do you do you have any kind of you know soul? I mean, you you, you know who this, this bank is doing, but you continue to work for them. And he kind of just shrugged and goes, "Yeah, well, you know, I'd work for any other bank, but they're all in on it too." Wow. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't a nice way to end the conversation because you know usually when you talk to people about this sort of stuff, they they're they're always like a little resistant unless they're actually working directly for the system. Right. And, well, you know, and also this guy pointed out that, you know, 
Oh, and uh, by the way, one of our listeners has just pointed out it was Robert McNamara was the Secretary of, De- Secretary of Defense in Vietnam. Thank you. Um, just to bring that information into the, the archive. But uh, basically, um, he, you know, the whole thing he's talking about is profit motive. It, it's seething with profit motive. You know, it's radiating profit motive. And it's just, it's, these are the reasons why, you know, we're, we, you know, he kept talking about the bankers, the bankers, the bankers. And then this guy lived through the early 1930s. You know, he got to see all this stuff up front. The bankers have been the same problem that they've always been. And this is the reason largely why I think it's hard for people to grasp why we feel this way. But when you look at the monetary system and you look at how many times we're just doing this song and dance all over again, how many times do we undo you know, I mean, that's why I said it earlier, the Money Masters, it's like a three-and-a-half-hour documentary starting with the very first central bank scheme with the goldsmiths and just up till today. You know, they always say, well, if we go back to sound money, everything will be okay. I would say in all capital letters, again? You know, we'll be okay again? You know, how many times are we going to do this? Is it going to be our great-grandkids who are going to be oh, have to slay the dragon again? You know, it just it reminds me of like the you know like the, the the classic historical tale of the dragon comes and demands from us one of our virgins from the village, so we just give him one every time he asks for it, and then he comes back and gets another one. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense to just continue to do this. And as long as the means exist, that is that we use money as a medium of exchange rather than declaring the earth's resources as the common heritage and working together to cultivate them so that everybody has a good life. It's going to be the same thing. Um, we're now down to the last 90 seconds of our show. I wanted to take a moment also to point out to everybody that uh, the argument on independent political report, uh, thanks to the Resource-Based Economy Caucus, we managed to get an um, article on independent political report, which is one of the largest third-party news outlets there is. Uh, the debate is really heating up. It's been very, it's been a very good opportunity. Um, please visit there and participate, because uh, it's just me and the Vindaloo doing all the work. <laughs> but um, in any case, uh, thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in. Please donate at V Radio. That's v-radio.org, um, and we could really use the support at this point. And uh, I'll be looking forward to hearing from all of you there. And once again, if you're a radio host and you would like to be featured at vradio.org, please don't hesitate to send me an email at vtv at vradio.org, spelled the same way. Um, thanks again to all of my supporters. You're the reason I keep doing this. And um, there is no show tomorrow because the show is Monday through Thursday. We'll be back on to, uh, on, on Monday. Um, I, and I haven't found out what exactly the subject will be yet, but, I'll, but you'll know by then. Thanks again, and uh, take care, everybody. Say goodbye, Azzy. Goodbye, Azzy. <laughs> Thanks a lot, folks, and uh, I will talk to you all later. Thanks again for another edition of V-Radio.